0: Of the two sessions, this is undoubtedly the uh, the more difficult of the two, and I suspect that what you will see or hear uh, this evening is um, is uh, if, the, if there's any um, uh, if there's any objecti- objectivity her unbiased report here today, it will be completely coincidental. (laughs) Um, After uh, having given you some of the, uh, kind of the the structural, the the sketch of um, my father's whereabouts during his um, during his life, I would like to tell you a little bit about how I saw him, how I think others saw him. Um, in no particular order, although I think some of the more salient features will, will appear first, um, he was an incredibly wise person. He had a wisdom which was um, extremely intuitive, uh, it, there was a a Solomonic um, dimension to it. He just knew um, what was uh, what was going on, how it needed to be addressed, um, and uh, and his uh, his intuitions. Um, Bypass most of the, uh, the 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 surface material that would have and did distract others. Uh, I may have mentioned this last time that I sat in with him in, in certain instances when he would, when he felt it was appropriate, when he counseled certain people, and um, they would. <coughs> they would discuss their problem and and he would he would focus on something that seemed to me completely outside of the of the, of the perimeter of anything that had been discussed and unerringly he he would touch on the, the deeper causes and the roots of whatever was taking place um my brother, uh, Shia, the the psychiatrist, recognized early on that um, the um, the function that my father served was not one that he was likely to be able to emulate with with that that same sort of of. Um, I was almost inspired wisdom, and um, having inherited a um, a commitment to be helpful to others, he um, trained as a psychiatrist uh, to be able to, in uh, in a way which was an acquired wisdom, to uh, to be of service to other people. Um, I'll come back. I think a number of times there will be points of reference to this, to this, uh, this indigenous and native wisdom. Um, but it it uh, it qualified him and um, ultimately made him the confidant of Milwaukee's Jewry regardless of what, whatever religious um, stripe anybody might have been, uh, they knew that he, there was an open door and that there was a wise and, uh, um, and committed person who would listen and would guide them. And uh, by the time he... Uh, he had reached uh, the end of his life. He probably knew the greater majority of the Jews of this community and had been their confidant at some point or another in um, in their lives. He was a person who had, by virtue of what he was exposed to in, in, in the early part of his life, he was a person who had a very pure, absolute... Um, uncluttered, uh, in, in a certain sense, simple faith. Um, what others need to synthesize or what others need to, to analytically create for themselves. He had, as a result of, of, um, of the environment, which uh, which was a, um, a faith environment, he had that kind of faith which, which never was shaken. Um, which could not be thrown into um, into doubt and um, it was a faith that enabled him to to serve as a as a, as a pillar of strength and as an anchor to, to everyone in their in their times of uh, of difficulty when they were being tested. Um, he had an extremely warm um, and empathic personality uh, he was the, the quintessential people person he had an ability to um to focus on others in ways which made them convinced that there was nothing else in the world that was going on when they were talking to him um it was a, a concentration which was caring, and embracing, and supportive, and um, and affectionate. Um, it, uh, it was something that left them, no doubt, but that they could trust themselves totally to His care and His guidance. Um, And and certainly one of the reasons that um, all of my father's sons were um, in one form or another able to to serve in a Kirill capacity was uh, directly traceable to his complete lack of, complete absence of judgmentalism. When somebody walked into his presence, um, my father did not subject him to any inquiry or hold him up to any um, particular standard which qualified him to be the object of his attention and his caring. Orthodox Jews, estranged Jews, whatever, whatever, wherever they were, they um, they came into his presence. They knew that he um, that he respected what uh, their integrity, that he respected their person, and that uh, that he saw the best in them. Uh, and it was a very, very powerful force of energy that he. Uh, emanated towards people. He just people felt um, uplifted in his presence. Uh, there are a thousand stories, and perhaps ten thousand stories, people who even today I continue to meet, but who have, regardless of where I'm, I've traveled, um, I would uh, bump into people, and the moment that they would find out uh, who my father was they they would launch into this this um, expression of, of how they were his best friend um i don't I'm, I'm not even sure how he did this by the way i mean I, I can understand that that there that everybody thought that they were unique in the their relationship with him that he didn't care about anybody as much as he cared for them. That part is as difficult as it may be to achieve I I can understand that somehow he was able to do it but I can't tell you how many people have come up to me in the last 50 some years to tell me that when my father came to Milwaukee that he lived with them in their apartment. (laughs) So um, he 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 may have used smoke and mirrors, but he lived in at least 20 different places simultaneously when he first came to America, when he first came to Milwaukee. And, uh, by the way, this uh, this statement was made with a great deal of, of pride. This was a, a, a medallion that these people were wearing, that the uh, rebbe's lived with them, that... Uh, uh, the Rebbe respected and trusted the kashrut of uh, their parents to the point where uh, he was uh, a member of their family for a while. Um, uh, he had this um, this very positive nature. Um, uh, when he would interact with people, there was there was no chance that people would come away feeling that he had um, either concentrated on or um, focused in on, on something that was negative about them. Um, if he was ever critical of them, it took him a while to catch on, uh, because he, he, would, he, would, um, he would be able to affirm whatever was, was right about people. And um, in, in every in every precinct in which he interacted with them, they were um, they they just left that interaction uh, feeling taller. If he would. Um, if he would counsel people who were having marital difficulties, if he was counseling people who were having, uh, if it was a family squabble over inheritance, and heaven knows how many of those there were, and, and, or whether it was business partners, or whether he was visiting uh, the people in the hospital, um, somehow, they, even if he just put a, stuck his head into the room for a second, they would, they would just feel, physically they felt better. Not only emotionally, it just felt physically better. I remember when, when I was in, in uh, the beginning of my rabbit and my father was urging me to go to visit people in the hospital, and then I would come back, and um, and he would say to me, um, so, when did you go? And I told him I went. And he, and when did you return home? And I told him I returned home. And he said, well, that was, uh, that was almost two hours. I said to him, yeah, you know, I went in, I talked to people. So he said... You're not doing it right. And he took me along. He would pop into a room for about 40 seconds, all about 40 seconds. In those 40 seconds, I don't know how, whatever he did, he he uh, performed this magic. People felt like a, like a million dollars. And uh, and he and he would walk. Out. And he'd be in and he'd zip in out of those hospitals. And and by the way, he was uh, he visited hospitals. Uh, Virtually every day of the week, with the exception of Shabbos, he was there. Uh, he was there when people needed him, and he was there um, at the, at just the right time. Um, he was he he just had this really this this um, he just had this this very um, sunny disposition. Um, And um, uh, whether it was in Shul, or in his office, or um, at the Shabbos table, there was, um, it was, um, it it was an experience of being in a, in a bright place. Um, He was also extremely patient. Uh, He was, he was even patient in times when I didn't want him to be patient. Uh, when I came back from from the yeshiva, I was, of course, a, a, a big zealot and burning with all kinds of uh, of religious fury, um, and uh, not nearly as tolerant as he would have liked. And uh, and I would uh, call upon him from time to time to to be uh, to be a little bit uh, less. Patient, and uh, there was just no way that I could move him from his very gentle and patient disposition. That's that's how it was, and he was going to move people with his patience and with his gentleness. I can tell you for sure. I didn't with my religious fury. He um, he was an emotionally a very rich person. and I say emotionally rich, first of all, he had a, he had a, a great sense of humor. And, and when he laughed um, it was a very deep, uh, rich, warm laugh. It, just was a, it was one of those things that everybody who was anywhere within about a block would resonate with that laugh. It was, it, it, he, just his entire being was, was enjoying whatever the, the humor was. And conversely, I must tell you that when he got up to Daven, uh, which was only on a few occasions during the course of the year, uh, when he had yurt side, if there was anybody else who had yurt side, he would defer it to them, to daven for the omen. But the times when he davened exclusively were um, the last minch of the year, of Rosh Hashanah, which some of you know that I've, I've since done that. He, he, uh, he had me do it in the last two years of his life. Um, he would daven milah, Um and Erev Yom Kippur at the, at the Erev Yom Kippur our practice is, is that we don't recite slichas so he would recite one of the slichas at the Yom Kippur the Erev Yom Kippur meal um I can tell you that um, first of all that it's extremely difficult for me to dive in those times I, I do it because that's that's the tradition but it's very difficult for me to dive in those times because I remember how he down in those times he wept as profoundly as he laughed and um, it was a um, it was a, a, one of those experiences that um, inscribed themselves on your soul when, when he's Davin nila or when he davin mincha erv rosh hashanah it Uh, it it was uh, the kind of the kind of an experience that never would would leave your memory all of which you have to understand makes it very difficult for me to do those things because I don't do them the way he did um I mean it was clear when when he was dubbing at those times that um his heart was broken and we don't uh, we're not exposed to hearts that are that broken in our uh, conventional experience over the years uh, in his own way he, he had his, his his own places of things that he was that he was zealous about um, there were numerous instances during the course of his lifetime when it would have been expedient for him to uh, trim his beard, cut his beard, and uh, he would not allow uh, his beard to be touched. On one occasion, he had a growth on his vocal cords, and um, I believe he had the surgery in um, in Mayo Clinic. And they um, insisted that they were going to cut his beard because they had to get, they had to free the area so that they could operate on his vocal cords. And uh, he made it very clear to them that they were going to do it leaving his beard intact or there was not going to be any surgery and they did not touch his beard. Just as a um, uh, uh, another characteristic, which uh, which you should be aware of, because uh, your experience with some of his children might lead you to believe otherwise, my father was an extremely punctual person. Um, if If he had to be somewhere at a given time, he was always there five minutes earlier. Um, uh, He did not want anyone to ever have to to wait for him. Um, As a uh, parent... He was unabashedly, unashamedly, overprotective. Um, he was the, the biggest fan his children ever had. No one ever compared with his children. And um, he uh, he made it very clear to all of us that um, uh, regardless of what he had seen and heard, that there was there was no one who was on a par with us, and uh, he also assured us that he was completely unbiased. Um, he would he would never um, feel that there was anything wrong with um, hovering over us. Uh, long after we, we had children who were, uh, uh, in case of my older brothers, they, had already, they already had married children, my, my, uh, my father would, would call up on occasions when I would be giving classes or I would be uh, visiting with, uh, with friends. At uh, 10 o'clock, the, the phone would ring. And um, the host would pick up the phone and they would talk for a few minutes and then he would hang up and said, "Your father said you have to go home and go to sleep."
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> so um, uh, you have to understand that, that all of this, while it was annoying, um, and sometimes it was it, uh, it was extremely annoying, but um, <laughs> Uh, my father um, was, um, was not about to have this, uh, this aspect of his personality obstructed. Um, he was, when it came to his children, he was a professional warrior. If any one of the children or the grandchildren would not be well, if we were running a drop of temperature at 5 o'clock in the morning, he would be walking outside of our house, waiting for the first sign of anything moving so that he could find out how we were feeling. Um, He, um, because when I I came back from the yeshiva and uh, there was no chol of Yisrael here in in the community for many, many years after we came back, so I found a farm roughly about... uh, 25 minutes or so from the city. And uh, and once a week or once every 10 days or so, I would drive out with a big five-gallon pail to um, to get milk, which I then... We had this, this little pasteurizer, and we cooked it up and so on. Um, many, many times, my father would slip into the house, go down to the basement, pick up this, this five-gallon pail... And the following morning, when I would get up in the morning and walk out the door, there would be this five-gallon pail, um, full. Now, you have to realize that here was a, um, a man who was a, like, 70 years old, schlepping around this, this huge five, five-gallon. is not an easy thing to schlep around. Um, and when I would, um, of course, when I would accuse him of it, he would shrug his, his shoulders and say, Me? I had anything to do with your milk. Or you know, a, he was he was always innocent of ever having done anything. He he would rarely allow us to do anything for him. Even when he was ill, he would call up other people to take him to the hospital. He didn't want he didn't want us to, to have to put ourselves out on his behalf. Um, he he was able to to play with his grandchildren, each one of them on their own level. And his grandchildren were crazy about him. Um, I said to some of the grandchildren that in, in anticipation of this class that they should um, come forward with any uh, anything that they remember, and a bunch of them came over and, and, and said, um, "Well, we remember when he would he would sit us down in his lap, and then all of a sudden he'd open up his legs, and we'd fall down, and and uh, and, and and he would enjoy it. We would enjoy it. Sit, and, and then they would look they looked at him and said, will that help
1: you?'" <laughs>
0: Um, uh, Despite his uh, fidelity to us as his children, he um, was no less faithful to his grandchildren. And if he would see us becoming upset, and uh, God forbid we should should patch one of the children, he would admonish us, saying, um, in Yiddish of course, you patch your grandchildren, you leave my grandchildren alone. <laughs> so he, he made it very clear that uh, he wasn't going to allow us to discipline our, his grandchildren. In, in, uh, um, he would, uh, there was nothing that he wouldn't do f- for us. Uh, no amount of money they wouldn't spend on something that we would indicate that we would need, whether he had it or didn't have it. But on himself, he would spend nothing. Um, I, it never occurred to me to find out where he bought most of the clothes that he wore. And then on one occasion, um, I saw Beryl Weber. Earl Weber was is a, is a, a gentleman who used to... He was a, a, a widower who would usually eat with us in Shabbos. And who, uh, in, in his retirement years, would kind of um, find some interesting th- things to do. And he came in with, uh, with some, some pants and some shirts. And I said to him, Ribeiro, uh, what is that? He says, I just, your father told me he needed some clothes. So I said to him, so where would you get it? He said, well, some I got Salvation Army, some I got St. Uh, Vincent de Paul. I said to him, how much did that pair of pants cost? He says, 50 cents. So, I mean, and that's that's basically that's that, with, with the exception of the, the stuff that you couldn't find in the Salvation Army, like a Bekishe or Tishkalat. My father's clothes came from the most prestigious places.
1: <laughs>
0: um, needless to say, with someone who had that kind of of um, attitude, and that kind of faith and was that kind of a fan club, one would think that um, all of his children should, should have had no problems with self-esteem. Um, and I'm, I'm not completely clear why it worked in the opposite direction, but I think that part of it was that um, there was... Uh, such a sense of um, of esteem and veneration to which he held us to that when we compared ourselves with it we uh, we found ourselves, I think, lacking. I can tell you that the, one of the most difficult things in the last months of his life Um We found out somewhere, I think it was late January, that he, he was diagnosed with, with pancreatic and liver, liver cancer. And that it was only a number of months. The prognosis was just a few months. Um, I found one of the most difficult things for myself personally was that I, I knew that there wasn't enough time for me to make of myself what I thought he deserved to have seen in his lifetime. Um, I must tell you that um, the number of times that I heard my father raise his voice to my mother in, in all my years was zero. I don't ever remember his raising his voice to my brother. I don't... I'm having some difficulty even recalling that he raised his voice uh, to any of us. There were a, 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 a... But a few times, I think less than five, that I can remember as a child his potching me. And you have to realize that his potching me was a light slap on my hand. Um, Those were few and far between, and it wasn't much of a, it wasn't painful, but I can tell you I remember them, uh, because they were not the kinds of uh, things that he, uh, that he would ever uh, do with with any kind of, of frequency. So, uh, those were times which which scored. Um, on one occasion, uh, you know, we, we had a base of Medrash and there were balabatim, and and uh, these were European balabatim, so they were characters, and they were always they were at each other. There, this, there was always this this uh, sniping that was taking place. I mean, we had balabatim who we had a we had gaboyim, and one of them. Uh, would would do the the rock the memorial prayers, and another one would read off the names of the deceased. And the the Gabi who was reading off the names would always read into the roster the name of the fellow who was making the kelim So you know, so he would suddenly you know, I mean, he'd be saying very quickly, so he would find himself. You know, about thirty seconds after he finished, he would realize that he had just memorialized himself. <laughs> at which point, he quickly memorialized the Gabai. So there, this, this, there, there were things like this constantly going on. And when I was a youngster of maybe four years old, one of the one of the balabatim um, trained me to say a particularly nasty thing, and to walk up to whoever he was. He was. Whoever's case he was on at the time, and uh, and zing him with this thing, and then when I zinged him, he he just happened, you understand? He just happened to be standing there. He said, "Hey, you see, even the rabbi's son knows." You know what I mean? <laughs> and it was it because you know if it was it, it became an event that the entire Bismarck became involved in. Those, that was one of the times that my father admonished me, despite the fact that you know I, I had been. Kind of taken in by this by this Balabas, but I knew afterwards that you don't trust Balabas very quickly. <laughs> um, uh, uh, many years later, actually, when um, my father saw that I was not in a good frame of mind, I, I was in kind of a sullen mood. So he questioned me about the fact that I was in this mood, and uh, and I confessed to him that I was upset because I had lost. I was upset because I had lost my temper. So he said to me, um, "Let me give you the rule by which I've operated all my life." He says, "Whenever I get angry, he says I look at the clock." And I mark off the time, he said, and um, I resolve not to act on my anger for 24 hours. He says, 24 hours later, most of the time, the things that I got upset about are ridiculous. He said, and in those few instances where they're still deserving of comment, he says, I find I can address them with a kind of dispassionate seichel that they deserve in order to be effective. Uh, and he was, um... He, he was rarely angry. Um... And in one... In one instance, um, he acted angry, but uh, he was... He did exactly what the situation required. Um, there was something going on in 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 show, and somebody needed to kind of get brought back into line. Uh, but he's uh, it, it was not it uh, it was not something that uh, that one would register upon his his visage. He uh, when he needed to admonish, he admonished gently, he admonished uh, <coughs> affectionately, warmly, um, and uh, and people knew that they needed to do something. You have reached the end of side A. Please fast forward the cassette and turn over to continue the program on side B. Our Shabbos Tish was, uh, when, when I was growing up, uh, it, uh, there were, it was a regular Hasidic Shabbos Tish. But even in the, that's, that was on 11th Street, when we moved over to this side of town and and some of the balabatim who uh, who understood what it meant to be at a tish were uh, were no longer in uh, either alive or in sufficiently good health to be able to attend or within walking distance. Nonetheless, the Shabbos table was was invariably full. Uh, there were always orchem, shalochim, traveling businessmen, uh, many of whom became members of, uh, of our extended family, simply because they, they would come year in and year out. Um, um, there were a, a, f- a fair number of, of uh, widowers, um, older bachelors, some of the younger people who were, in those days were becoming um, close to Yiddishkeit who would eat there almost every week. And uh, and and so it was. Um, it would have been a rarity that we should have sat down to a Shabbos table with nobody but ourselves there. Um, the um, the house was always full of, of um, and open to uh, to travelers and uh, and to the poor. Um, and um, I think the um, much of our attitude towards uh, what a Shabbos tish should be like, and uh, and in general how one deals with with uh, with, with people who are uh, down and out, is directly derived from his example. Um, he would rise very early in the morning, um, probably somewhere around five ish or so. And um, he was a big Tillum Zugger. I mean he was uh, every morning before the davening, he would I'm not sure how much Tillum he would say, but he would he would there was a it was a regular part of his daily protocol. Um, probably um, less than a year ago or so there was a, a business with the garage in my mother's uh, in the back of the house which uh, someone had, had bashed in and, and neighbors were complaining about the fact that uh, it needed to be repaired and all kinds of stuff so I um, received a message from the uh, city inspector's office that it needed to be repaired and a, a, a note to call and it turned out that I was directed to the chief of the the building inspectors. So I called him and uh, he said to me um, one of the, the you know the fellow who's in charge of this of this neighborhood. Um, they were in a meeting and this happened to come up and as soon as he saw the the address he took the case away from his subordinate so he wanted to explain to me why he wasn't taking personal charge of this case he said to me when your father first moved to the neighborhood in nineteen fifty he said i was the paper boy i used to deliver the sentinel every morning he said invariably he said i would deliver it at about five quarter after five in the morning and he said uh, your father would greet me He'd all, he would always have a good word for me and 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 uh, and, uh, and, and a word of appreciation he said I've never forgotten uh, those early morning meetings and he said and when I saw the address he said I decided I wanted to handle this myself so I'm, I'll work with you on it so there's um uh, there are all these little points of, of, uh, of nexus that... Um, that the farmer, who used to go get
1: the milk, came to a councillor?
0: The farmer came to a council. I don't remember that. He
1: went to get the milk and all, those, all that period of time came
0: into the, the councillor, he was having problems, he came to the I, I don't remember. Um, uh, my father would would uh, on occasion would would advise us about uh about what he thought was in our best interest invariably they had to do with how we should we should relate to life how we should relate to other people he he um um he exhorted me to be careful about expecting too much from people. He uh, he said that, that was um, I was placing myself and my relationships at great risk because people were people, and um, if I was too demanding or expected too much, then I was going to be disappointed. Um, my brother told me that uh, he told him that what other people while other people consider a mistake a liability, he always considered a mistake an asset. He said because he would learn from it and he would never repeat it. So, uh, he um, he, he encouraged my brother to um, not to be too harsh on himself when um, when he found that he had made a mistake, because it was a, um, a learning experience, um, his capacity to um, to process a situation um, was uh, was something of a. Of, um, uh, of an inspiration itself. He uh, he shared with me on one occasion how in the first few years that he was here, at that time there was, Milwaukee had a chief rabbi, it was the last time Milwaukee had a chief rabbi. His name was Rabbi Schoenfeld. The name will be familiar to you because of the Mois of the, Chitim is named in, in his memory, in his honor, Rabbi Schoenfeld's Maus Chitim Fund. Rabbi Schoenfeld was a of Lithuanian extraction. He was a um, a very substantial Torah scholar. And and well respected by all of the rabbis of the community. At the time there were many many kosher butcher stores. And there was a um, the the rabbis of the community were um, were very agitated about the quality of Kashrut in the butcher stores, and there was uh, there was there was this this um, struggle going on between the rabbis and the butchers until finally they called a, a a meeting of all the rabbis and all the butchers, and during the course of that meeting. Um, Uh, The rabbis got up and accused the the butchers of some terrible things, and the butchers in turn got up and accused the rabbis of some even more vile things. And the accusations were flying, hot and heavy. Rabbi Schoenfeld, all of the rabbis were involved, and my father, throughout this, this, uh, this, this really nasty argument, despite the fact that his name was mentioned a number of times in in ways which were far from complimentary, did not react. Um, The following day, the phone rang, and it was Rabbi Schoenfeld on the phone. He was an older man. My father at the time was was, uh, in his early 30s. And the Rabbi Schoenfeld said to him, Rabbi Tursky, I must tell you that I am extremely envious of you. He said, I reflected on the meeting um, after it was over, and I can't begin to tell you how how controlled you were and um, and how smart you were not to. To get into this this uh, this uh, disputation with the with the um, this ugly disputation with the with the butchers, so my father said to Rabbi Schoenfeld, uh, "Really, it was nothing. I I just wanted to eat my supper." So Rabbi Schoenfeld said, um, "I don't understand. What does that mean?" <coughs> so he said, "Look, he said I knew." that if I were to get into the thick of this this fight, that after the meeting was over, I would come home. I would sit down at the supper table, and my Rebetzin would say to me, so what happened at the meeting? So I would report to her that so-and-so said such-and-such, and and that I responded this, and the other person said this, and then I said that. And he said, I knew my Rebetzin would say to me, what? You lowered yourself to get into an argument with that, with, with those people? No supper for you.
1: <laughs>
0: so he said, I decided it's not worth my supper. So I chose not to respond. Uh, my, my father, um, the blessed memory, um, uh, encouraged me to be careful about eating my meals regularly on that <laughs> score. He was a person who was completely not preoccupied with himself. I don't think I've ever met somebody who spent as little time thinking about himself as did my father. Um, Not only was this reflected in his unselfish character, or conversely, in his selfless uh, giving, but it was... He he really was free. He was liberated to really concentrate on what was happening around him. To 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 be able to spend the right time with the right people. He could listen in a way that nobody else could listen because he was not ego involved. Um, uh, he would walk into um, to the New York weddings where uh, people would be uh, would be vying for position. Um, he would sit himself down in, in some uh, obscure corner of the, of the table. Uh, the the, the um, invariably would the, the celebrants would discover him at some point and run up and insist that he would have to sit at the head table. And it was a big fight to get him to, to move up to any place near the head table because of his aversion to COVID. He, he had he had a, a a terrible aversion to COVID. I mean, just it was the kind of a thing that he was he was absolutely uncomfortable with, and uh, and whenever he had an opportunity, he would he would um, take whatever COVID was being given his direction and, and um, see to it that it ended up with with someone who uh, uh, with with whom or for whom it was it it would be of greater use. Um, He, uh, he also was not a, a big on gifts. If you gave him gifts, he quickly found some someplace else to give them. Except for the, the period of time when he was into cigars. Those he didn't give away. Um, but anything else he gave away. One day my father brought me a, a, a beautiful um, silver besumming holder. And I knew those things were expensive and uh, and it was a it really was a wonderful gift, and, and um, I had it for roughly about a year or so. And then I was visited by my niece and nephew, and they happened to be there by uh, by Abdullah. And I pulled out this besomim thing, and I heard my niece. She gave her husband a poke. She said to him, <gasps> she said. Zadie gave away the besogging thing that we gave him. <laughs> so I acted like I didn't hear. I quickly made a And when they weren't looking, I grabbed this thing, ran over to my father's house, and said to him, Abba, you can't, you can't do that. I said, to him, I said to him, I really appreciated the thought. It was a wonderful gift. I said to him, but, but, you know, your eight o'clock are over at the house right now, and they think you gave away their gift. So, he said, okay, leave it here, I'll take care of it. <laughs> so, he um, he put it into the to, you know, to the shafet, to the right, where, where he kept certain other silver items. And then the children came back, and they were there for his havdala. and very nonchalant, he went over and put, pulled it out of the, and um, he told me later on that he saw my niece give my nephew a, a shove and say guess we made a mistake
1: <laughs>
0: so um, so anyway yeah we still have it so <laughs> the um it, 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 he was just uncom- he was uncomfortable receiving he was a giver um in, in, um... Well, no, not he had no... He wasn't a person who had any needs for himself. He was, um... And, and when I was growing up, and again in the old neighborhood where there were Balabatam Friday nights, um, and, uh, the tish was a big tish. There people would come over uh, to sit at the tish. Um... Someone related to me that shortly after the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Yosef Yitzchak came over to America. He traveled through the States. He spent the Shabbos in Milwaukee. And uh, in middle of the tish, uh, someone walked in and whispered to my father that he had just been at the Lubavitcher Rebbe's tish and there were very few people there. So, my father benched very quickly and said to everybody, we are all going over to the, the Bhavata Rebbe's dish. And he walked in with this throng of people. Um, the the Bavita Rebbe found out later on what had transpired um, and that uh, he, at a, at, a, at a later point, um, remarked to someone about my father, and she said, the younger man licked me on hearts. He said, this young man is, uh, I carry him in my heart. Some years later, my oldest brother, in uh, Denver, had a, um, a question, a question in which uh, there, were, my father had a very strong opinion. And uh, he went to the Labavitcher Rebbe, he went to him to solicit his advice. And after he presented the problem, the, the, uh, the Rebbe looked at him and said to him, uh, young man, you have a father. And uh, the session is over. And that was the, uh, he was not about to, to, uh, to challenge my, my father's opinion. Um, I've already told you um, how he was this community's confidant. He uh, advised people about matters uh, that covered the entire spectrum of, of life's activities. And, uh, and as much as we lived... On the second floor, the bismetrist was downstairs, my father's study was downstairs. We could, uh, many of the times in the quiet of the night, we could hear uh, all kinds of, of sensational sounds coming out of, um, out of my father's office. People who were screaming at one another in, in, uh, in their um, heated uh, differences about their business problems. Uh, husbands and wives, um, and uh, with their uh, with their difficulties, and uh, and all the heavy hearts, and the and the sobs, and the cries that that took place when people were pouring their hearts out. Um, uh, attorneys and judges, Jewish and otherwise, would call upon him frequently to serve as an arbitrator to settle cases that they felt would best be handled out of court. Uh, And at some point, uh, he was given by the uh, judiciary of Wisconsin, he was given a uh, special uh, award for having served as uh, as an emissary of the court in settling so many cases. I remember one instance that a fellow... Uh, who I did not recognize as being a member of the community, came in, and uh, my father got up and, and left with him. He returned about an hour or so later, and I said to him, "Who is that? And he said, I forget what his name was, John Fisher or something. So I said to him, it doesn't sound like a Jewish name. He said, no, he's not Jewish. So I said to him, so where did you go with him? So he said, well his mother uh, uh, they were apparently neighbors of of sorts at one point um, had come to seek his counsel and ever since she would never do anything or allow her children to do anything unless they would first receive my father's approval so he said this fellow was about to buy a, a big piece of real estate but his mother told him he couldn't do it unless I would first see it and approve it. so he said so he, he drove me out to look at this at this real estate um, during his um, the the um, the titian, uh, my father would uh, regularly hold forth i mean he would never, which he would faithfully record. By the time we moved from the old neighborhood to, to 54th Street, there were boxes and boxes of, of uh, teras that he had recorded, both in, in halacha and gemara and agoda and on Torah. Um, but um, when, when we sold that, when my father sold the house, he had refused many offers to sell it for a, a, a church. So he ended up selling it to the, the, um, the laundry. There was this huge laundry next door, the American Linen Supply, right next door. They bought it, and they were gonna level the whole thing and use it as a parking lot for their trucks. So the wreckers came before my father had moved all of the materials out, and all of those boxes of his, of his were were lost. So there's, there, there was just a few scraps of paper left that we found in, in some, some box. So all of, all of that, unfortunately, was... Um, um, a number of years ago, uh, some of you may recognize the name Gendelman. There's a Gendelman family here in, uh, in uh, the community. And um, there were um, David and Fagel Gendelman. They were the old-timers. They were people who were still Hamish people. Uh, their children, there's Max, and there's Sheldon Gendelman, and there's um, Esther, I think her name is Esther Spector. So, um, when, many times when I would meet Fagel Gendelman, on the street, she would tell me, Oh, your father saved our lives. And then she would tell me the story. And uh, uh, as is my my um, propensity, I, I quickly forget things. So when Fagel Gindelman died, I went to pay a shivakal. And as I was about, about to walk out, Max gentleman stopped me and said, You know that your father, a blessed memory, saved my parents' lives. And I said to him, and I, you know it, it, it rang a bell and I said to him, Do me a favor, I said to him, tell me the story again. I said, because your mother told it to me a number of times, but I I, I constantly forgetting. So he said, Well the story was that I was I fought in the Second World War, and um, um, at a given point the uh, war department sent a telegram to my parents saying that I was missing in action more often than not that meant that um, they had been killed in battle so he says my parents were hysterical they ran to your father to whom do you go at such a moment against the to the Rebbe so he says so my mother ran with this telegram to your father and your father said to her, Fagel, David, I assure you that Max is alive. Trust me that he is alive. He said that assurance, the Rebbe's is telling them that Max was alive, kept them sane for months. Now he said he was he was taken prisoner. He was a prisoner of war. And on three different occasions he tried to escape. And each time he was caught it made, made things worse. Now, I have to tell you, by the way, that um, up until this point, I had heard the story a number of times. And when Max told me the story, I remembered that I... and Every time I'd heard the story from Fagel Gendelman, I'd said to myself, you know, my father was really a wise man. And I would hope that if, God forbid, there would be any similar type of thing where somebody would come to me, I would have the presence of mind to give them that same assurance. If, God forbid... In fact, um, you know the, that Max was indeed to be discovered as a casualty of war. It was time to find out about it. When it was asserted, why right? did they have to mourn for months in, 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 uh, in, in a state of doubt? So I had said to myself, "My father's really clever man to do that." Uh, so up until this point, I had always marvelled at the fact that my father knew exactly what to do and that he had had the courage to do it. But then Max added a very interesting note which which completely um, blew all of my rivets. He said, you know, he said that when I was finally freed and I got back to my home base, he said <clears throat> there were letters there from your father. He had written, in, written me regularly all of those months. That I would not have done. So there was... Uh, there, there really was something else that was was going on. A, a number of weeks ago at the Shabbos table, and somebody else told me a, a similar incident about someone else whose sanity was preserved by my uh, my father's assurance that uh, that they were alive, and indeed they they uh, came back for more. Uh, my father told me on one occasion that he went to to Chicago to. Um, he went to Chicago and um, over a period of, of weeks to go into therapy with a psychiatrist. So he told me that um, after X number of times, he said he would always walk in. He said the guy was a very bright guy. And he had uh, he would talk to him and he talked to him about, you know, his, his history and stuff. So he said after about uh, five or six sessions, um, they were sitting in this in this uh, therapy session and the psychiatrist looked at his watch and he saw that it was about 50 minutes was up and he said to my father, um, we kind of have to wind this up, he said, "because the, you have to realize my, my father was paying for this, this therapy so he said to him um, uh, it's just as well my father said to him because I, I believe I've learned all that I need to learn so the fellow looked it up he was very puzzled and he said to him I have to tell you something he says I have one of my followers who lives here in Chicago and comes to see me to solicit my advice so he said so he came to me and reported to me some of the counsel that you had given him. He said, and before I was prepared to contradict that, I had to find out what you and your approach were all about. So he said, so I reasoned that the only way I was going to do this was by my coming here and personally sampling what takes place in your office. He said, now that I'm here, let me tell you before you tell me what your conclusions are. My father proceeded to tell him given what what had transpired in these sessions, what his diagnosis, he said the guy, he left this guy a little pile of rubble, which <laughs> is where, the, where this fellow was, was at, and he said, but then he was at least prepared to be able to, to respond to the person that he was counseling because he now knew what where this, this therapist was coming from. Um, I'm inclined to believe that perhaps some of his most exalted moments and there were certainly many during the course of his life but that the the test came during the last months of his life. Um, he um, he was diagnosed as I indicated indicator he was diagnosed in uh, roughly the end of january uh, to be terminally ill with uh, with cancer and um, and we were all of us were um, in in one stage or another of, of uh, basket cases um, my father's positive character shown as a, a bright beacon. He uh, he was um, he was indescribably um, tranquil. Um, he was constantly carrying us when whenever we would waver, he would reassure us that um, his life was. Uh, was a life that he was fulfilled with that he was uh was proud of us that he was pleased with us um, he uh, he told us that um, in the latter part of the previous year that he had uh, gotten up one morning um, somewhere in the about, about dawn he said he was awake and he looked up and he saw his father standing before him and his grandfather Ramatala and if my memory serves me correctly there was one other Zayda there who he didn't recognize he, two of them he recognized and he asked his father who the third party was but I don't remember who he told him it was in any event he said that his father said to him, "I, I'm, I've come to tell you that you should, you should not um, be anxious or afraid." He said, "It will be like moving from one room to the next." So he would, uh, he and he repeated this story to all of us uh, on more than one occasion. And he said, "You know, don't like, don't worry about me." He said, "I've I've already." He said, "As soon as I saw my father, and he told me what he told me, I knew that uh, that there was a very brief amount of time left in my life." And he said, "And I'm I'm not concerned about it." He said that after his father delivered this message, that they disappeared. kind of an interesting anecdote during that period of time years earlier when I say years earlier it must have been a good ten years earlier my father had been in Denver for a wedding of one of my brother's children and my nephew Leby was at the wedding and my father turned to him and said to him "Leby, walk me back to the hotel uh, hotel was uh, two blocks away. So along the way, my father shared with Leiby a story which had transpired years earlier, when his father, when my grandfather Leblavlo lived here in Chicago, at the end of his life, had suffered a stroke. It was a very serious stroke, and my father um, sent a telegraph to his brothers in Eretz Israel that uh, their father had just suffered a very serious stroke and that he thought they should come in. My mm-hmm. uncle Nochem came in. My uncle Chaim did not. And my father was, was upset. So he wrote his brother a letter questioning his absence. And he said his brother responded by saying to him, I must tell you that it is not an accident that I'm not coming. I deliberately am not coming. He said, I remember my father in his strength, and that's the image that I want to carry around with me for the rest of my life. I don't want to come there and be forced to carry around an image of something that's that's going to consume me for the rest of my days. So my father said, Told Laby, he said, I want you to know that I disagreed with his conclusion for many years. He said, but as I get older, I'm convinced that there's a great deal of wisdom to what he was saying. So I'm telling it to you. I want you to remember that it's, uh, it's best not to have to 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 travel some long distance just to come and carry away with you an an image that will hurt you. He didn't tell anybody else that story, nor did he tell anybody else that they should remember. When my father was in the last when this this entire last period of of his life, my nephew Leiby was in Ertzisrael. He was the only one of the family who was really out of the country, and we we let him know in the last month that things were deteriorating rapidly, and that if he still wanted to catch Zayda when they, he could still talk to him, that um, he should come soon. So Leiby said that he was very gripped by the fact that ten years or or more earlier that my father had told him that he didn't want him to come. So it it was certainly spooky about the fact that this was the only one out of the entire family that that my father had committed this this information to. As it turned out, Levy did decide to come. My father had already lapsed into a comatose state. Uh, Levy arrived and my father opened up his eyes and said baby so he still um, he still took notice of him um, I can tell you the Pesach before he passed away you know how Pesach is um, how, how, how frantic and frenetic it is in, in, in getting ready for it I really did not have time to think about what it meant the, but as I got up at the Seder um, and at the time I was the youngest so I was the one who recited the, the, the Manashtana first I no sooner I got up than it dawned on me that this was going to be the last time that I was going to ask my father the Kashas so I just proceeded to, to I just fell apart I wept through the four kashas. My father sat there through the whole thing. I mean, he was, uh, uh, it was aristocratic, but did not flinch, did not acknowledge the fact that I was this 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 little heap of tears here, and uh, went on with the seder as though nothing, as though nothing had transpired. Um and uh, and that was basically his his posture throughout the uh, these months he was a, a pillar of strength and uh, it was only due to to his to his strength that uh, that we survived his loss um Tishabov uh, of that year, he was already in a, in a coma. And uh, <clears throat> I saw the, uh, the signs of, um, of how imminent his passing was. So since I have this thing about finishing my um, the amount of learning, my share of learning that I have to do every day, I, I stayed up all night, or most of the night to finish it. And then with the crack of dawn, I wanted to still get a chance to, um, I and my brothers and we, we took turns staying with my father and the rest of us died <laughs> I was just uh, removing my Rabbeinu Tom's when uh, they called from uh, the room that that I should come in and uh, my father was surrounded by all of his sons when he passed away Um, there's um, a legacy in the family which um, my father has left which still carries on some of his um, um, his greatest um, in any event which we try to emulate some of his the most uh, salient features of his personality. Um, But there is no question about the fact that uh, his children and uh, the grandchildren that remember him continue even this day to conduct themselves in a way which uh, they continue to believe is uh, the way uh, Abba would have wanted it. Uh, that concludes my um, description of uh, my father. Um, I asked his forgiveness uh, as I opened the first session, and I ask it once again now that I close this session. I did want to share with you one or, or more of the, uh, his uh, commentaries that we found in written form. But we are well beyond our uh, allotted time, so that will remain for another time.